Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Dan Huger. Eric Cohen is out this week. Thank you for listening. I want to ask you that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes of this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to find podcasts. And if you like the program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sarah Negri, Acton's Research Project Coordinator, and Dylan Pommen, Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and a research fellow here at Acton. Today, we'll be talking about last week's election in the United States, particularly the defeat of the proposed Value Them Both Amendment to the state of Kansas Constitution, and what the results of the Republican primaries tell us about both the state of the Republican Party and the future of American politics writ large. But first, I want to go to Taiwan. We will not actually be going to Taiwan, but Taiwan is in the news because last week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a small congressional delegation did. She was the highest ranking American official to visit Taiwan since then Speaker Newt Gingrich in 1997. Before we discuss the ensuing diplomatic crisis and fallout from the recent visit, I'd like to begin with Speaker Pelosi's reasons for leading the delegation to Taiwan, which she gave in an editorial published on August 2nd in the Washington Post. Quote, in recent years, Beijing has dramatically intensified tensions with Taiwan. The People's Republic of China has ramped up patrols of bombers, fighter jets, and surveillance aircraft near and even over Taiwan's air defense zone, leading the U.S. Defense Department to conclude that China's army is, quote, likely preparing for a contingency to unify Taiwan and the People's Republic of China by force. The People's Republic of China has also taken the fight into cyberspace, launching scores of attacks on Taiwan government agencies each day. At the same time, Beijing is squeezing Taiwan economically, pressuring global corporations to cut ties with the island, intimidating countries that cooperate with Taiwan, and clamping down on tourism from the People's Republic of China. In the face of the Chinese Communist Party's accelerating aggression, our congressional delegation's visit should be seen as an unequivocal statement that America stands with Taiwan, our democratic partner, as it defends itself and its freedom. End quote. Speaker Pelosi is certainly correct in her assessment of the increasingly aggressive diplomatic posture of Communist China. But is a visit which they clearly see as provocative, the best way to deal with the situation. What are our duties of solidarity entail when it comes to Taiwan? Well, I think, you know, for one thing, it's a diplomatic visit. Yes, it sure is provocative. All right. Um, But it's a good thing to show solidarity. It is a good thing for us to actually, uh, you know, put our money where our mouth is when it comes to supporting um, democracies around the world, especially those threatened by massive totalitarian regimes. Um, you know, we we saw this in terms of uh, our support for Ukraine. In fact, Pelosi mentions that she also visited Kiev. Um, and uh, this is the sort of thing the United States should be, uh, you know, uh, an ally that can be counted on for nations, uh, especially strong democratic nations uh, that actually respect uh, 
human dignity and the rule of law in contrast to the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China, uh, especially considering uh, everything that has been going on and continues to go on in Hong Kong uh, right now. Um, I wish we had had uh, more of this sort of thing with Hong Kong as well, um, that we would draw a line in the sand there rather than having to have a C. <laughs> Absolutely. No. And Speaker Pelosi alludes to several crises in China, um, including uh, the crisis in Hong Kong, which, of course, you know, Jimmy Lai, we've done the Hong Konger film as a pro-democracy advocate uh, in Hong Kong, now in prison. Speaker Pelosi herself speaks to these issues uh, in the uh, op-ed when she states that the Chinese Communist Party's brutal crackdown against Hong Kong's political freedoms and human rights, even arresting Catholic Cardinal Joseph Zen, cast the promises of one country, two systems into the dustbin. In Tibet, the Chinese Communist Party has long led a campaign to erase the Tibetan people's language, culture, religion, and identity. In Zhejiang, Beijing has per- is perpetuating genocide against Muslim Uyghurs and other minorities. And throughout the mainland, the Chinese Communist Party continues to target and arrest activists, religious freedom leaders, and others who dare to defy the regime, end quote. So Speaker Pelosi, this is definitely also on her radar. Sarah, what do you think of this, this situation with Taiwan as it's developed? I found Speaker Pelosi's statement fairly encouraging. I think it expresses some really important sentiments that we at Acton would really identify with. And to me, it seems, as Dylan was saying, that expressing the U.S.'s support against the Chinese Communist Party can actually be very unifying for our nation in some regard at a very fractured political time. It was encouraging to me to see the unified sentiment that we can express overseas in support of a government against the communist regime. Yeah, and I I think it's telling that the last diplomatic visit, of course, was Speaker Gingrich, who was, of course, Republican Speaker of the House at the time. Uh, This is something, um, you know, reporting in the Chinese media portrays this as outrageous departure from the norms. And the reality of it is, is we have had a Speaker of the House do essentially this kind of visit before. Um, so the outrage, um, one of the things, uh, one of the motives for the outrage that, you know, foreign policy experts are sort of speculating on is President, uh, is, uh, Xi Jinping is, uh, looking forward to a sort of unprecedented third term. And they're thinking that this aggressive posture is, is something more for domestic political consumption. What does that say to you about, the 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 Communist Party's own grasp of its strength. So, I think I may be a little more skeptical. I mean, we saw, you know, as uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, the Chinese were watching, and they were watching the response of the world. Um, and it's not clear to me what conclusions they drew from that. Um, and many people were noting, I think rightly so, the the at least commonalities with the Chinese relationship to Taiwan. Um, And, you know, there was already um, a certain amount of, uh, you know, military attention towards Taiwan coming from uh, China, even before Pelosi showed up. It's not like she's starting World War III or something like that. This was already happening. Um, 
they certainly do have, uh, you know, a state propaganda media machine uh, that is going to spin this in whatever way they can. Um, on the other hand, it's a one-party system in a totalitarian society, so I don't always buy how much they need to do that. Um, but maybe they don't either. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't get that they're they're in total control and they don't need to spin everything. Um, so I don't know. Um, I would like to think that. Uh, they will be cautious and they will be prudent. Um, but I don't really think that's actually true to their history. Um, maybe especially more recently. I mean, they, they have been pushing back against the, the freedoms they had tolerated in the 90s and early 2000s in many ways, religiously, economically. Um, there's a certain trend of retrogression uh, in China um, and who's to say that won't include uh, military aggression? Um, I don't. I don't really know. Um, I don't really know that anybody can fully predict that. Um, it's the sort of thing that you try to get data, um, you know, about uh, the global pandemic from China, and who knows? Can you trust that data? Can you trust their economic data? Can so? Can you trust their word or even their actions when it comes to uh, you know military buildup? I don't know. I think we should take it seriously. I don't think that means that we, you know, have to do anything um, right now, but we shouldn't just say, oh, this is all propaganda. This is all just for show. Um, It's a show involving some pretty expensive military equipment, Um, uh, something that people and and very powerful military equipment, something that people should definitely uh, take seriously. And I'm sure that people in Taiwan are definitely taking seriously. Speaking of military equipment, I was curious if we could talk a little about the response with the missile launches. Dan, kind of maybe you want to talk about the history of that, what happened a few days ago? Yeah. So um, China had promised sort of retaliatory trade sanctions in anticipation of this visit. Um, And after the visit, China also engaged in some very provocative military drills. Um, And this was reported uh, by Reuters on August 5th that, quote, China deploys scores of planes and fired live missiles near Taiwan on Thursday. This is last week Thursday. In its biggest drills in the Taiwan Strait, a day after the U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a solitary trip to the self-ruled island. China's military confirmed multiple firings of conventional missiles in waters off of Taiwan as part of planned exercises in six zones set to run until noon on Sunday. It activated more than 100 planes, including fighter jets and bombers, and over 100 warships, state broadcasters uh, on CCTV said. I think one of the reasons, I mean, there are historical reasons, of course, for the antagonism there. Uh, Chinese nationalists fled to Taiwan um, during the Chinese Revolution and set up uh, what is known as the Republic of China, officially, in Taiwan. And uh, for a long time, they were the international representative of China in the United Nations until that changed. Um, For a long time, the United States had diplomatic relations with the Republic of China in Taiwan and not the People's Republic of China on the mainland. One thing that I've talked about on Act and Unwind before and one of the hopes that I think uh, for a future Chinese democracy rests in other states that can provide a model of Chinese people 
in a democratic system. And Taiwan is one of those. Singapore is one of those. Hong Kong was one of those. And I think there I think those are 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 viewed as a sort of acute threat by the Chinese Communist Party. Because this shows that this isn't something that has to be. This isn't something that um, Chinese people as 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 their culture is is something that's necessarily authoritarian because it's not. We have live examples in the world of thriving Chinese democracies like Taiwan. And I think they view that in some sense as an existential threat. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. But as long as that vision of Chinese freedom is on the world stage, um, I think that makes them nervous. And I think Speaker Pelosi going over there and highlighting that and highlighting our support of the folks in Taiwan of this thriving and robust uh, Chinese democracy is very unsettling for them. Well, in that sense, this is about something much bigger. And, and I think I hope our listeners would, would catch on to this, that it's about human nature. It's about what do we believe human beings are? Um, what do we believe that we are created for, that God has made us for? If you believe that we are free, rational, social animals created for virtue uh, and flourishing and love and care for one another, um, however hampered by death and sin, um, then this is not, you know, the the freedoms we enjoy um, to the extent that we do um, in Western nations, in the United States particularly, um, are not particularities or peculiarities of a certain racial, ethnic, or even civilizational trajectory. They are human Um, They are what all human beings deserve, um, just on the basis of their humanity. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party is leaning on a different narrative uh, that, you know, any any. And so any uh, example of Chinese democracy, of Chinese religious freedom, of Chinese economic freedom, Um, is an affront uh, to their claims that Chinese civilization or the Chinese people are somehow different, um, that that these rights and freedoms um, don't apply to them and their people. Um, They're people who who so desperately need them and want them. Um, It it comes down to how do you view the human person? Yeah, one of the things, and you see this in a lot of not only Chinese state propaganda, but in policy, where you have, you know, even the way they describe their own system is what? Socialism with Chinese characteristics. Trying to link the communist ideology to something within the Chinese nation. Uh, When you have the Chinese patriotic church, when you have uh, attempts to co-opt various religious identities and wed them to the Communist Party by wedding the concept of the party with the nation. Um, you see this again and again. And it's a, it's, a, it's a disturbing trajectory and one where those, those other examples of, of, of ways of being Chinese and exercising self-government, ways of being Chinese and being faithful Christians or Muslims, um, these things are threats to the regime. Um, 
Turning to our next topic from sort of diplomatic crises to sort of uh, political turmoil, um, domestic political turmoil, low grade, no missiles were fired in the in the in any election um, in the United States. But we did have uh, the first major sort of post Dobbs uh abortion constitutional amendment come through. Uh, it was it was rejected. Um, and this was uh, the in Kansas, the value them both amendment to the Kansas state constitution, uh, which was rejected by a large majority, 58.8 uh, percent uh, against the amendment, 41.2 percent for the amendment's passage. Um, there's some context that's needed to sort of discuss this and often the national press sort of just passes this over and talks about this strictly as as a question of, of pro-life and pro-choice. But in 2019, the Kansas State Supreme Court ruled that uh, women's rights under the state constitution allow her to, quote, make her own decisions regarding her body, decisions that include whether to continue a pregnancy, end quote. Um, this amendment is was proposed in response to that ruling by the court. And there's been a lot of confusion about what exactly this amendment would do in the national press. So I think it's important to lay out exactly what it says and what the Kansas uh, State House also said it would do in its sort of official statement. So the amendment itself uh, that was proposed read, quote, because Kansans value both women and children, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion, nor does it create or secure a right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people, through their elected state representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion, including but not limited to laws that account for the circum for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape and incest, or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. End quote. In addition to this proposed amendment, the, the formal text of the amendment, the the Kansas House resolution also added this explanatory statement to the ballot paper as follows: quote. The value of them both amendment would affirm there is no Kansas constitutional right to abortion or require the government funding of abortion and would reserve uh, to the people of Kansas through their elected state legislatures the right to pass laws to regulate abortion, including but not limited to in circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or when necessary to save the life of the mother. A vote for the value them both amendment would affirm there is no Kansas constitutional right to abortion or to require government funding of abortion and would reserve to the people of Kansas through their elected state legislatures the right to pass laws to regulate abortion. A vote against the value of them both amendment would make no changes to the constitution of the state of Kansas and could restrict the people through their elected state legislatures from regulating abortion by leaving in place the recently recognized right to abortion, end quote. What does this result tell us about the landscape of the abortion debate in America in the wake of the Dobbs decision? Well, I think it shows that things are still pretty muddy and confused. Uh, we talked quite a bit about this in past podcasts, um, even before the Dobbs decision, uh, of just how mixed uh, the polling is on abortion, if you actually get into specifics. Um, 
And once again, I mean, you know, you you read the the text of uh, that amendment, proposed amendment, uh, twice, and it's like it's a lot to keep in your head, right? <laughs> like voters, I don't think want to have to like do some philosophizing at the ballot box. I think they want to be able to check check yes or no, just like they do with candidates. I think that's part of the problem with a lot of ballot initiatives um, and. Um, and often, although I don't know in this case, but um, often I feel like their proposals are worded in order to be misleading. Um, so, uh, you know, whether from the naming to the language to what a yes vote or a no vote actually indicates, because sometimes it's yes, I don't want this, <laughs> right? You know, or something like that. Um, and so that's not to say that, you know, uh, Kansans have been hoodwinked or anything like that. I, I'm not trying to say that. Um, but I, I wonder how much we can read into this, um, that this is something that has been highly politicized, um, highly talked about in the press in terms of the, the Dobbs decision. Um, and then you get something on a ballot um, and people might just say, oh, I'm so sick of this. I don't want to I don't want to deal with more of this. I don't want Kansas to be the next state that everybody's talking about, you know, or whatever. Like, who knows what the motivations are? I don't know how much we can necessarily read into it. Yeah, I think I'd agree with Dylan. There's some confusion there with language and the whole political process in general. People aren't always educated on even the difference between the legislative and judicial branches and what an amendment means versus what a bill means or legislative processes. Um, and when you have something on the ballot that has a, a yes or no answer and it's about abortion, you know, there's there's been a lot of speculation about why so many voters for no turned out in the red state of Kansas, where it was somewhat surprising in some ways that the amendment didn't go through, given the political leanings of Kansans. But I think part of that, from what I've read, is that there was this post-Dobbs scare. Everybody's talking about it already, and this is really in the spotlight. And so that generated a lot of turnout from people who were for abortion that didn't want to lose that right to abortion that they claimed was in their constitution. And I think additionally, there's a lack of positive argumentation for um, upholding the amendment in, in the sense that people misunderstand what Dobbs did as saying, well, now um, they're, we can't have abortions anymore. There's going to be lots of difficulties with access to abortion because of this federal ruling. And really, it did none of that. It just returned it to the states to make that decision. So in the same way that there's been confusion there, I think there's been some poor arguments for the amendment um, in terms of it would restrict all access to abortion, when really it would do exactly as you said. And all it does is say that there's not a constitutional right to abortion in Kansas. So I think there's probably a lot of confusion there where voters came and Maybe they support abortion in very minor cases, or they think it's not a decision for them to make, which is what a lot of pro-choicers would say, is that, well, I don't really support it, but I think everybody should be able to choose. And so if you don't have clarity about what the amendment is actually doing, then people tend to just go with something that's more or less restrictive, I guess, um, that lines up better with their viewpoint in a more conservative way, because they're not really sure what the opposite would do. So they say, well, just kind of stick with what we have, because I know that some people get access to abortion. When you phrase it like this, there's a way that people's fears may come to dominate. Maybe there's, there, there are folks that would report, would, would uh, you know, let's take the 
example of the legislation in Mississippi that was the occasion for the Dobbs decision. That was legislation that was passed that prohibited abortion after 15 weeks. Now, if you had – from what I'm hearing from you, from the both of you, is that if instead of of merely stating a sort of negative case of legislatures in – you know, the legislative bodies in Kansas can legislate abortion, if they had actually put forward an actual policy, be it a 15-week ban, there's been heartbeat legislation – if you actually articulate what it what the future looks like rather than opening up a sort of nebulous future in which people can imagine you know a very very restrictive abortion regime with let's say no restrictions for you know those common caveats of rape incest the life of the mother um, that that might have animated some of the results yeah, I think also uh, it'll be interesting to see um, and when it happens, because it, it's definitely a when, um, when a state tries the opposite, right? There there will be states, right? Um, you know, on the coasts, I'm sure, but um, probably some others uh, throughout uh, the, the middle of the country uh, that lean to the left um, and that basically try to do uh, the opposite, where they say, no, you know, the legislature cannot place any restrictions on abortion and they you know they go through um, X Y and Z but also kind of leave it open um, I think you'll see a similar sort of playing to the fears of voters um, well then now uh, you know infanticide is what's coming next or what you know whatever the case may be assuming you don't already believe that abortion is infanticide as uh, most pro-life people do um, but uh, but you know, you, you know what I mean. It, it, the sort of thing where you have just this big open question mark over such a sensitive and again highly politicized issue. Um, I think there's a sort of risk aversion um, in voters that they're like, let's just keep things how they were, um, even though basically everyone didn't like how things were to some degree, depending on you know what position uh, they took. Um, a lot of people just don't don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to, the national conversation, you know, everyone to be looking at their state and them. Um, so it'll it'll be interesting to see how that goes um, and to see what role it plays um, in, in future uh, elections, especially as we approach, um, you know, a very big midterm election uh, this November. Yeah, I think, Dylan, that's a good point, the idea of not rocking the boat. And I, I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying about Taiwan as well, where there's just fundamentally different narratives going on. And it's very hard to, to reconcile those two narratives. Um, specifically with regard to this case, I think the narratives can sort of come down to just very different syllogisms that you come up with. And this was fascinating to me to read even the basis for what the constitutional right to abortion was in Kansas. Uh, and the first bill of right or the first item on the Bill of Rights, the first right enumerated in the Kansas Bill of Rights is very similar to in the U.S. Constitution, the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And somehow it's extrapolated from that. There's this right to bodily autonomy that comes from the right to life. And I think I would agree that there is a right to bodily autonomy that goes along with your right to life because we're embodied, embedded humans, as Michael Miller would say. And I think the problem 
is that this right to bodily autonomy is not extended to unborn human beings. And so there's a fundamental philosophical distinction there that people aren't either aren't willing to think about or haven't completely thought through or it hasn't even been proposed to them. And I think this is where the fundamental divide in narratives comes from, is that on the pro-life side, you have this, this syllogism that's really undefeatable, where you say abortion is the intentional destruction of an innocent human being. It's your first premise. Second premise is the intentional destruction of an innocent human being is always morally wrong. Therefore, your conclusion, abortion is always morally wrong. And I think most pro-lifers eventually come to that conviction. And essentially, you have to destroy one of the premises to be able to take that argument down. And I would be really curious to know what what the fundamental pro-choice syllogism is, whether it's just an idea of competing rights where they they place that right to bodily autonomy of the mother above the right to life of the baby. Um, But I'm I'm genuinely curious to know what that is, to see kind of what that narrative looks like and why it's so, you know, staunchly held by so many people and really where where the common ground is. Because in a similar sense, obviously it's a different issue with the U.S. and the Communist Party, there's there's a inability to reconcile because you view the human person differently. And I feel like there's some of that divide happening in America today on this issue as well. I think I think that's an excellent observation. Um, and this gets to some issues um, I touched on in a recent Detroit news piece about Dobbs. And one of the interesting things about that case is you have, of course, Justice Alito's argument in the majority opinion that, um, you know, and, and Roe v. Wade was grounded in many ways in the 14th Amendment and the idea that there are unenumerated rights and that, you know, that, you know, the court, you know, discovered this unenumerated right that no one had previously discovered because there was a long history of the regulation of abortion procedures in the United States prior to Roe. Um, in fact, that's how Roe got to the court is there was legislation uh, in many states. Um, and Justice Alito's argument is, is that there is no long historical precedence for the recognition of this right. So it's, it's wrong to make this sort of argument from the Constitution. But what was also interesting in that decision was the dissent. And the dissent made a lot of arguments about the rights of women, the rights to what they what they viewed as analogous rights, um, such as you know a right to interracial marriage, to homosexual marriage. Um, but what they didn't do was make the sort of argument that both Roe and Casey did which both acknowledge there's a compelling state interest in the preservation of fetal life, but that that must be balanced with um, with uh, these other concerns um, with the rights of, of, of women. Now, I think it's very interesting that that whole line of argument was sort of vacated, that what was the literally standard pro-choice position, because – Abortion was not totally unregulated in the United States before Dobbs. In fact, Roe and Casey both outlined specific circumstances, either according to trimesters, according to Roe, or to standards of viability in Casey, when and where abortion could be regulated by the states in the interests of preserving fetal life. 
Another principle, though, in answer to your question is actually in Justice Roberts' concurrence. Justice Roberts, you know, believed that the uh, Mississippi law in question was constitutional, agreed with the majority of the justices in that sense, but he wanted to preserve what he talked about as a right to choice. And his standard was there's some period of time that's reasonable for a woman to make a choice regarding terminating her pregnancy. And I don't find Robert's argument compelling, but it is another standard that is offered that is basically, you know, if you, if you have time to discern that you are pregnant and to think through um, – you know, the consequences of that pregnancy, you know, that you have a right to do that, but that does not lead to a sort of totally open-ended framework, you know, until until birth. So there are are some arguments out there, um, and Justice Roberts is is one of them, um, that, that talk about other sort of standards. I want to go back, though, to what Dylan said, that there's a sense in which this is just a very difficult topic, and it's a very difficult topic that divides families, divides communities. People have very different opinions, and the nuances of those opinions are often lost or caricatured or uh, or uh, or denied in order to win an argument, in order to sort of bludgeon the opposition into conceding all of your claims. And this is something we're going to have to learn to do. One of the things that 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 Rowan Casey did was take this debate off the table. It actually didn't. We actually had all these discussions around kitchen tables, in churches, in our communities. Um, But now, in a a sense that it hasn't been for nearly 50 years, we have all options on the table in regards to either, either a very, very permissive abortion regime is possible in certain states and total and complete bans are possible. And in order for us to live together, in order for us to have some sort of consensus and respect for the rule of law, we're going to have to get comfortable with a deliberative process that all of us are very uncomfortable with. And this will often lead to compromises that many people are unsatisfied with. But I think the fundamental nature of self-government is that in living in community – is that you have to have these difficult conversations. This is what living our life together is. One additional uh, issue here, uh, I think, and related to these questions um, of, you know, where is the pro-choice side coming from? Um, How do we have these difficult conversations? And why did this particular uh, proposed amendment fail? you know, I mentioned the the titles, uh, titles of these amendments and laws, for that matter, uh, are always uh, misleading. It was the respect them both amendment. Um, value them both. Value them both. Sorry, value them both amendment, and it did include you know language about exceptions for the life of the mother, um, exceptions uh, in the case of 
um, you know, sexual assault, rape, that sort of thing. Um, but it still seemed pretty open-ended. Um, and it's the sort of thing, you, one of the common criticisms, I think it's disingenuous, but one of the common criticisms people have for against a pro-life position uh, is that, well, pro-life people only value a baby until it's born. And they don't care after that, and they don't actually care about women. Uh, people, uh, you know, women especially who are put in extremely difficult situations, um, Rape uh, is a very hard thing uh, to legally prove uh, unless you have, you know, real evidence. Um, it's the sort of thing that people, for very understandable reasons, don't feel comfortable talking about for a long time in many cases. Uh, in the United States, there's a statute of limitations on offenses of sexual assault. Um, and that's part of why we had this big Me Too movement uh, five years ago. Um, and... You have this recourse to social shaming um, and trying to uh, professionally poison uh, people because there is no recourse to the law. Um, so maybe something to think about, um, even though I think the criticism is disingenuous because the, at least the pro-choice criticizer doesn't actually care about the baby before it's born. So they're equally inconsistent. The logic cuts both ways. Um, but if you want to be consistent, well... Why not pair these sorts of amendments or laws or reforms or however, you know, it is approached um, with things like ending the statute of limitations for crimes of sexual assault? Looking at how do women get into this situation doesn't mean that you have to, you know, usually the argument is, well, if we don't have a robust welfare state, we can't say we, uh, you know, care for women, which... You know, depending on who you ask, maybe we, you know, some people think we already have a too robust welfare state, uh, some people not enough. But that that seems like a really weird, squishy line to draw, whereas there are things we could do and could do a better job at uh, when it comes to uh, caring for women uh, who are put in a very difficult situation. You know, carrying a pregnancy through nine months, that's going to affect uh, their career, their job, their expenses, even if they plan to give the child up for adoption at the end. Um, there's a lot we could be looking at, a lot we could do better. Um, and that's the sort of thing um, that, you know, we should be valuing them both, absolutely. Um, and that, I think, would undercut a lot of people's hesitancies um, over these sorts of uh, amendments or otherwise, uh, you know, proposed reforms. I think it's also very important to be educating people on a philosophical level about who the human person is. Um, as we said, there's that difference in ideology. So there's the legal aspect where you have to start implementing those reforms. But even underlying that, helping people to understand how to evaluate these propositions, to understand like what the unintended consequences are of all of these legal reforms. And essentially, I think one important principle to talk about here is subsidiarity, to really get people to invest in their communities, to see on a local level what's happening in your local township, in your local county, at your local pregnancy center. Where is the help really being offered? Is there a way that you can get involved there? And having those resources kind of in your back pocket to be able to show people, no, this is what we are doing to help women, to help babies. There actually are resources out there. There's communal aid out there. And helping people understand that I think there is also you know, legal support as well that has to be in place. Um, but just knowing that there's other options, knowing that there's uh, a support system 
and other people that are willing to help out because, like you said, the pro-life movement has to be pro-life in all areas. And I think, Dan, like you were saying, that comes out in dialogue as well. Our dialogue has to be respectful because every person you're talking with is a person. So even though these issues are very divisive and can get sort of gritty and a little bit um, difficult, they're important to have because we're all a little bit gritty and difficult as people. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Speaking of gritty and difficult, we had a very contentious primary season in the United States. And in addition to constitutional amendments, um, these races were happening all over the country in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Um, One of the most high-profile this uh, this cycle was the primary for Michigan's third district between Representative Peter Meyer and John Gibbs. Um, the race was seen as sort of emblematic of the str- of a larger struggle within the Republican Party, and it's been reported uh, a lot I- on a lot in uh, the national news as one of these sort of bellwether races for the for the future of the Republican Party. Now. In the interests of full disclosure, the Acton Institute is located in the 3rd District. All of the members of this panel live in the 3rd District. Uh, Congressman Meyer has also been an, uh, on Acton line before. And in addition, Peter Meyer is the only congressman that I have ever had Twitter beef with. Um, this was because in an interview with the East Grand Rapids Schools Foundation, uh, both Meyer, Congressman Meyer and myself are East Grand Rapids alumni. Uh, he was asked the following question, quote, you could only have one roses, caramel corn and ice cream cone from Jersey Junction or Yesterdog. Which do you choose? Congressman Meyer answered, quote, Jersey Junction ice cream cone. The flavor is weather dependent. When it's hotter out, then it's a fruit-based flavor. When it gets a little colder than chocolate, I'm a big fan of cookies and cream too, end quote. I responded to him with a meme of the night from the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, stating that he had chosen poorly as the obvious answer is yesterdog. The shreddy pickles seal the deal. With all of that being said, with all those caveats and disclaimers, John Gibbs won the primary in a very hotly contested race. Um, He's a former official in the Trump administration, and he also received the endorsement of President Trump. How large does the former president loom over the Republican Party today? How big of a factor do you think that endorsement was in this race? I definitely think it mattered. Um, Maybe not so much in Kent County, where uh, the race was far closer. Um, However, you know, even even in Grand Rapids, uh, there definitely are some, um, you know, very strong uh, supporters of our former president um, and people who would buy into some of the rhetoric, which was coming from Gibbs. He was claiming that uh, it was mathematically impossible for Trump uh, not to have won uh, the 2020 election, which Trump, in fact, did not win. Um, and, you know, there... There are people who are very upset uh, with our former representative, Justin Amash, for voting to impeach President Trump the first time around. Um, And 
Peter Meyer, in fact, even kind of leaned into that in his election, although he wasn't running against Amash. Amash chose not to run. Um, but, you know, 10 days after being elected, he he votes to impeach Trump for the second time. Um, and there is something interesting about that. It tells you something about uh, West Michigan that is very different than really a lot of places in the country. We have um, this strange streak of basically uh, conservatives uh, who don't quite fit into the mold, at least as of recent times. Um, But that is not the case uh, with Gibbs in terms of uh, his candidacy. Um, So I think it's mattered. Um, You know, one way or another, he he won this primary. Uh, Again, um, he genuinely won it. (laughs) Um, They counted all the votes. Um, And it's interesting to me. I don't think it's so much... I mean, part of it is how much is Trump looming over... Uh, the Republican Party, um, yes. Um, but it's also how much Donald Trump is looming over the Democratic Party. Um, as we know, uh, they spent 450, was it million? Thousand? Thousand. Thousand. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, I didn't want to get the number, the, the zeros wrong there. Uh, thousand uh, promoting Gibbs. Uh, basically attack abs against Peter Meyer uh, in favor of Gibbs. Uh, it's, it's worth noting that in Michigan, uh, primaries are open. So Democrats and Republicans uh, choose which primary they're going to vote. And you don't have to be a card-carrying member of either. In fact, you don't have to be um, a party member at all to vote in the primary. You just get to pick one when you show up to the polling place. Are you going to vote for the Republicans or are you going to vote for the Democrats? So um, it's interesting that you would think from the perspective of the left, they would much rather have Peter Meyer be the representative than Gibbs. In fact, I have friends uh, who are you know far more left-leaning than me and tend to vote Democrat. Um, and they, I know, uh, absolutely uh, did not want Gibbs to win. Um, and yet their party uh, was you know, doing an ad buy for Gibbs. And I think the reasoning is, amazingly, uh, they think Gibbs will be easier to defeat uh, come November. Uh, if it is Gibbs versus Hillary Shulton, their candidate, rather than Representative Meyer. Um, I think this is a huge misjudgment. Um, I don't, I'm not going to make a prediction about will Gibbs win, um, but I do know a little bit of history that seems a little relevant here. Back in 2015, there was a very contentious uh, Republican uh, presidential primary, um, and leading up to Iowa, uh, the first primary uh, in which people voted, Donald Trump was ahead in basically every poll, and all of the attack ads were going against Ted Cruz, who did win Iowa, if I remember correctly. But still, even months into this primary, when it was very clear Donald Trump was was out ahead, they were still attacking Ted Cruz. No one expected Trump to win, um, and then, or rather. In fact, I think a decent amount of uh, Democrats and others thought that Trump would be easier to beat. Um, And we know how that went. Once again, Trump actually won. They counted all the votes. There were a lot of people who claimed he did not. Um, Unfortunately, this is a trend in our elections. But uh, he won. And it is kind of crazy to me to think that, oh, someone as extreme as Donald Trump can't possibly win. We know that he can because he won. Uh, why can't he, you know, someone that he has endorsed here in West Michigan also win? Um, so for those who are troubled by uh, some of our former president's uh, more extreme rhetoric and perhaps some 
policy stances um, related to that. Um, it seems uh, like a, a pretty big misjudgment to say, oh, good, the Republicans now nominated Gibbs and, you know, Shulton will be a shoe in uh, I can't remember the last time we had a Democratic representative in our district. Um, she has been campaigning. Uh, she she ran against Meyer um, uh, previously uh, in 2020. She did not win. Um, back then, uh, she seemed to be, I think, very prudent. We just talked about um, the whole issue of abortion. Um, she did admit to being pro-choice, but it was kind of buried um, on her list of policy proposals or you know preferences and that sort of thing. And she she would very quickly try to shift conversation to, oh, did you know that I go to church? Uh, and she's a member of the Christian Reformed Church, and she goes to, in fact, one of the more conservative uh, churches, assuming she still goes there, as um, the, the same church she went to two years ago. Um, and she would just bring that up and talk about her involvement in her church community and how she's a you know good Dutch Reformed Christian. Um, and now she's sending out mailers uh, that say, Schulten will protect reproductive rights. Um, she is banking, to get back to our last topic, she is banking on this Dobbs decision and the public reaction to it, uh, cutting in favor of the Democrats. Um, I think that might be a misjudgment as well for the reasons we already mentioned. Uh, people don't want to rock the boat, but that doesn't mean that they therefore have some strong opinion uh, that the Democrats were all right. I think this has always been a divisive issue. And you know, West Michigan is very pro-life. Um, I don't think it's a winning issue in, in West Michigan. So anyway, that was a, a long rambling answer. But I think that Trump is still, you know, his shadow is still cast over the Republicans. He has mentioned that he wants to run again in 2024. Um, and that definitely had an effect. Uh, I don't know to what extent you can quantify it, um, but it, it certainly isn't nothing. Yeah. And it was, again, a very tight election. This was 4,000 some votes between the two. So Yeah, I think it's interesting you, you note that you can vote either ticket in the primary, Republican or Democrat. Because as I recall, I think there were quite a few more Democratic incumbents. So there were fewer races on the Democratic side with this ballot in particular. So it's just interesting thing to note. Maybe some of those voters swung over for the primary to get those more unelectable candidates as they viewed them. I think it's interesting looking at the political spectrum I think in the smaller races, the more local races, you can see a little bit less of the um, maybe the Trumpism or just like the trying to connect to the high profile figures, just the division. It occurs much less at a local level. I think when you get to um, Congress, you see it a little bit more. However, I don't think it's the deciding issue necessarily. And I think from what I know of both of these candidates, there's there's a certain respect I have for their integrity and for their ability to kind of go with what they believe and with their principles, particularly noticing Meyer's vote to impeach Trump, even if it was unpopular with his party. I think that does show a certain backbone that we should be looking for more in our candidates. Um, I'm not sure with regard to Gibbs. I've done a little less research on him, but I think I think that is something we want to look out for in our politicians. And so I see that as somewhat encouraging. Um, but if we, if we start to see less of that, as you were saying, Schulten sort of switched her position not switched it, but highlighted it. I guess it's more marketing than anything else. Yeah. You know, timing your your positions and how you state them with the 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 news, the current news of the day, um, which is part of politics. But we definitely should be emphasizing the principles and sticking with commitments, and that really helps. 
it helps people see the honesty of candidates. It helps them support them because you're able to actually know what they believe. And then you vote for someone that lines up with what you believe. It should be noted uh, there was uh, after after the I think a day or two after the election there was a uh, a unity rally at the Kent hosted by the Kent County Republicans mm-hmm. in which Representative Meyer congratulated uh, John Gibbs. John Gibbs has uh, a very interesting professional background in the corporate world. Has a very uh, you know Stanford graduate. Um, he is um, certainly an accomplished individual. Uh, also. Previous government experience in the Trump administration in the in the in the uh, uh, housing and urban development. Uh, Hillary Shulton uh, is a former Obama administration official. Uh, worked uh, on immigration, um, and uh, it's an int- it'll be an interesting race because both are politically experienced, but neither I don't I don't believe has won elected office before. So that's a very interesting uh, thing. Michigan's uh, third district has also recently been redistricted. Um, it was a district that most polls, pollsters would say would be a lean R district, would be a Republican leading district in the past. And I think with its new configuration, it is also now a lean Democrat district. Um, so it will be it will certainly be an interesting, uh, interesting election to follow. There's. And it's interesting because we, you both mentioned this sort of strategic voting. And Michigan is an open primary state. There are other states in the nation that are like this. There are other others that are not. Um, Sarah mentioned the configuration of the ballot, which is very true. Even uh, Hillary Shulton ran unopposed, even though she's not an incumbent. She did not have a primary opponent in the uh, in the Democratic primary. How do you ethically navigate such a system? Because there's a sense in which uh, I know, for instance, many likely Democratic voters come election time who voted in the Republican primary. Some of them took that as an opportunity to vote for the Republican candidate that they felt best allied to their values and would be the Republican candidate they would you know, most likely vote for over the other Republican candidates, um, even candidates that they thought, you know, maybe if they heard something down the road, maybe they could sway them even. that Maybe they would, you know, uh, vote for this person come fall. I know many other primary voters who saw that ballot configuration and they thought all of this is decided in my party's side. I am going to vote for the candidate, the Republican candidate that I think is least likely to win. And that is, in fact, maybe most at odds with my own values, um, just so, you know, my part, I can increase the likelihood of my party winning in the general election. What do you both think of the ethical dimension of those kind of votes when you have an opportunity, as we do in Michigan, to engage in this open primary system? That sort of thing doesn't really bother me so much, I guess. Uh, I mean, there there is uh, a side of uh, politics that is strategy. Um, uh, it was interesting. Um, so there was uh, a statement and an article about it uh, yesterday uh, regarding Peter Meyer's assessment. So he did show up at that unity rally, but he still seems pretty um, 
uh, unhappy <laughs> with the results, to put to put it mildly. Um, and he said, you know, he was hopeful for a non-zero sum, uh, you know, vision of politics, and he thinks that you know we we're moving away from that. Um, it was an interesting statement. I wish he were here t- for me to ask him about it because I just think politics is fundamentally zero sum. That doesn't mean that you have to never compromise, or and maybe that's more what he meant. Um, but in an election, only one person wins; everybody else loses. That's the definition of zero sum. Um, and of course, there's going to be some strategy to that. Um, now, I can criticize someone else's strategy, as I just did, um, saying that I think it's a bad strategy for the Democrats. But I don't really think there's a, an ethical fault there, personally. That's just they're playing the game. I think they're they're making a mistake. <laughs> um, but I don't think it was a, a moral mistake in this case. I think I would disagree slightly. I do believe there's an economic evaluation that goes on when people are looking at candidates. They understand how the game works, typically, at least to some extent. And you are weighing pros and cons. Um, whether you know it or not, you're making a decision and your vote counts. So there's certainly that kind of economic analysis. Um, but I think there's def- definitely an ethical side to it. Um, I would hope that the way the system is set up, I think it's it's more honorable to choose a candidate based on your own values, your own commitments, and your own principles. Um and so I, I don't know if I would say they're necessarily completely at fault uh, as a party if you lean towards those strategies. Um, but I think it, it's just less honorable. It's less of a, of a gentleman's game. It's more of a marketing punt. And, and I think it just is difficult when you're, when you're targeting the enemy. It adds to polarization. It adds to division. When you see the other party as the problem and you're trying to make them the most beatable, and that's the problem with our two-party system in general, as I see it, is that there's only one enemy and therefore there's this automatic polarization. Um, whereas I think people would do better to sort of rethink their, what, their own, what their own opinions are, what their own positions are, really try to find the candidate that lines up best with that. And the two-party system can be a guide because you typically follow the same convictions throughout your life unless you have a radical conversion of some kind. So... I think generally it's good to have a guide with political parties. I would prefer if there were more than two viable ones. But in general, I think there's there's a dangerous road you can start to go down if you tend to be always focused on attacking the enemy or taking down the enemy, even if it is more of a, a marketing or strategic stunt. I think that's a that's a very helpful way to think of it. And I'm actually I'm I'm reminded now of the ambiguous nature. We talked a little bit about those those DCC uh ad buys. They were not endorsements of John Gibbs. In fact, they said things in them like John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. But then went on to list some things that conservative people would really like. So it's technically not promoting him, but what the effect is on voters in their voting process is was the disputed thing. Congressman Meyer thought these ads would make Michigan Republicans more likely to vote for John Gibbs, even though they technically said he was too conservative for West Michigan. Um, the discussion on politics will go forward as always, and I think I think Sarah's right that it's that it should be principle guided by principles. 
But I think Dylan is right that we should be aware. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe I'm more, you know, just getting too cynical in my old age. But um, I, I absolutely think people should act based on principles. Um, but you also have to act in accordance with the nature of the thing in which you are interacting with. And there is, uh, I don't, I don't think politics is a game or certainly I don't think law is a game and legislation and you know these, these things affect people's lives um, but there is when it comes down to elections we literally talk about a winner right it, there is it, there is a a game in that zero sum sense that is just fundamental to the way it works maybe we should ask ourselves is there a way to make it less of a game you know people have mentioned for example you know, ranked choice voting is an option. Um, I'm uh, maybe this is a bit chaotic of me, but I, I, I like the idea of experimenting with sortition uh, or, you know, uh, determining who is is our representative based on casting of lots. Uh, <laughs> perhaps we vote in a primary, but then we cast lots. For, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not saying we should actually do that, but um, but I'm open. I'm, I'm open to, to redefining the game, but the game as it currently is defined um, you're going to win if you have the best strategy. Um, again, I actually think the Democrats are wrong uh, in in the current strategy that you know the thinking that Gibbs is somehow going to be easier to defeat than Meyer. Um, and I think you know it's not always true, um, but unless you have some big sort of misstep um, by one particular candidate, which really is not caused by attack ads and that sort of thing, it's far better to make a positive case for your position. Again, I think that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump is she thought just not being Donald Trump would be enough. And it was not. She lost. <laughs> um, and, you know, Shulton better think very clearly about what issues she's taking a stand on if she wants to beat John Gibbs, because I don't think it's going to be easy. Um, and like I said, I don't, I'm skeptical that her current choice of leaning into her uh, position on abortion is uh, a, a smart one for West Michigan, not to mention the fact that I'm pro-life and I disagree with it. Um, that's a sample size of one. That's not a great, uh, you know, finger to the wind for the whole the whole district. But um, but that's I'm just saying as a from a strategic point of view, regardless of my own position, um, it seems like a misstep to me. So I'm a, I'm a bit skeptical um, that it's going to work. But I do think that you need to be aware of what the game is and how do you play it and what strategies work. And yes, I, 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 I certainly don't fault people for voting their principles. Um, but if I only voted my principles, I might vote for you know someone basically in every election who has no chance whatsoever. And I always kind of have to make that calculation of, well, between the people who might get this nomination, uh, now we only had two choices this time, um, but you know, and especially like going back to 2015, there was about like 16 choices on the ballot for the Republicans, right? Um, if I only went with the person, you know, that I thought most aligned with my views, it that vote wouldn't make a big impact. Whereas if I say, okay, these are really the two people that have any kind of a chance, who do I like between them? Well, I'm, I'm doing that kind of strategy. I'm not sticking 100% to my principles um, in a in a purist sense, but I am trying my best to advance them through picking someone that I think has that best strategic advantage given the game of politics as it is. Politics is more of an art 
than a science, and prudential judgments are, are always involved. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look to the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thank you to Sarah. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Dan Huger, and we'll see you next week.